Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Welcome back for another episode of Opto Sessions. Today we're talking to Alessandra Solberger, founder of Top Tier Impact. Keep listening for tips on how to spot emerging trends from someone that's done it in both public and private markets. Will Bitcoin rival gold as investors' safe haven of choice? Are we at an inflection point for impact investing adoption? And which biotech innovations will impact everyday lives soon? We'll answer all this and more on today's podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Hayden Brain, Editor-at-Large at Opto, and I'm joined today by Alessandra Solberger, entrepreneur and investor. Alessandra's career to date spans private equity with her time at Blackstone and venture capital having spent time with Mosaic Ventures. Among multiple other investments in biotechnology and blockchain, Alessandra is founder of Top Tier Impact, a global private network of impact investors and entrepreneurs. Uh, So hi, Alessandra. Hi, Hayden. Good to be here. (laughs) Great. So first of all, I wanted to start... um, I've put down kind of a broad topic of venture capitalism, but here I'm just keen to understand like how you spot emerging trends uh, and really dig into your investment philosophy or kind of any underlying principles uh, that have stayed consistent throughout your career. So my first question to you would be, what do you look for when assessing a business's growth potential? Of course. So before I go into an early stage businesses growth potential, uh, it's important to distinguish between mature businesses like in private equity, um, public businesses traded on stock markets and early stage businesses because the questions become completely different. These are truly different words. And so in early stage, uh, the data is uh, not that much, right? Uh, And therefore, you kind of need to build thesis that reflect the growth of a whole sector, the growth of new sectors that you don't see yet. And then what the important characteristics early on are that you want to see in a company. And so the team becomes extremely important here, way more important than uh, uh, in a mature private business or uh, in, uh, in public markets as well. So obviously relevant there in a different way. So when you assess the team, you want to look for a very broad range of uh, uh, boxes to tick. So on one side, obviously, there is sector expertise. On the other, I think that the attitude of the founder, like, you know, the learning, the flexibility, the humility, all of the the leadership potential, because uh, at some point, especially when it starts scaling, it really becomes about managing people and being good with motivating uh, early stage talent, right? Talent that wants to be in early stage companies and that is flexible and that is nimbler, motivating that talent uh, to, to continue growing and, uh, and pushing, right? Because uh, early stage, there is a lot to do for everybody all the time. So that is one area, right? The team and thinking about that. And when you think about the market, then uh, uh, there is a lot to assess in terms of uh, a specific sector, and your thesis around that. So, for example, I've been in the blockchain space for almost eight years now. I came to it from various different angles, actually. And it's a very polymathic space, so to say. So it's a space that brings together very different sectors. I had a background in governance and system design. I was writing academic papers on corporate governance systems. Uh, Governance, as you might know, is very key to blockchain protocols because I like to say that just like the internet created an innovation ground for startups, for business models, uh, the blockchain uh, created an innovation ground for governance models. And that's an extra step, right? Because it's not just about businesses. It's actually about political structures, countries, communities. Um, It goes really into everything. And so when I looked at it, I, I came from it... With that background, I came from it also because um, I was very involved in uh, technology entrepreneurship. Uh, I was still at university and, uh, and I found it on some tech blog and having been in finance as well, it kind of brought together everything. But then when you start assessing something, something so new, right, you actually need to work with fundamental assumptions. And I say that because you see, in public markets, you can work with your ratios. You can really look at the numbers and uh, and you know just go from there, right? Um, and, uh, and 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 that's enough. In early stage, like I said before, the data isn't there. 
And so when you start thinking about the new industry that just didn't exist until recently, right? Uh, and that was the case with, uh, with the blockchain space, you need to work with really like, how, where is the world going to be in 10 years from now? And then you start kind of getting more detailed from that, right? So you, you reach a very high level kind of uh, set of questions, you answer those, and if the answers excite you, then you start getting more detail from there. And when you get more detail from there, eventually you get to these factors like the team, the business model. Like, you know, does the business model make sense? For example, I'm looking at uh, some uh, wellness companies right now in uh, at home fitness. Uh, obviously, it's important to to have that covered well right now, uh, and I'm excited that it's happening. And in there, if they're early stage and they've just started kind of uh, selling their services, there are a lot of different choices that they can make about their business model. And I think in there, what we look for is your own thesis about the types of business model approaches and revenue model approaches that would make sense and would scale. But also you look for the flexibility of, again, the team in terms of adjusting that because nobody gets it right in the beginning. Uh, it's very rare. And so you need have that approach right of iterating until you get there so i'm talking about really early stage deals in here um and every sector is a bit different but this should give you an overview yeah no that's great that's really interesting so i guess kind of two follow-ups from that would be firstly so to particularly in the early stage space it requires uh someone to kind of think as you said sort of five ten years ahead to understand kind of fundamental consumer behavior before even a mature or even semi-mature market has kind of been built within that industry or space or sector um and those are obviously skills and kind of personality traits that you that you possess uh could you pinpoint some of those kind of key traits that that someone like yourself needs to be able to identify these trends when we start talking about these things and it gets abstract very quickly but i think that ultimately curiosity, I would say, <laughs> if, you can, if you can bring it down to something, especially something that resonates and, and that describes me in one word, it would be that. Uh, and I say this because when you build out um, a future scenario, the more different areas you can bring together into that, the better. And so, for example, um, when it comes to blockchain technology, right, let's continue with that example, but you need, to, you need to think about so many things, right? You need to think about the evolution of the uh, financial services industry. You need to think about like database technology, where it's, it came from, where it's going. You need to think about the trade-offs of the technology per se. But then you also need to think about the kind of world we're moving into. And you can go very deep into social cultural dynamics, which are actually the reason why corporate governance fascinated me so much back when I was writing papers about it, because every governance system reflects the unique culture and values of their nation, right, of their country. And people would always ask me, what is the best governance system you've seen out there? And I cannot answer that question, right? There is no right and wrong. It's simply the way that uh, people reflect their own culture, their own unique right and wrongs, right? And so... When, when I say this, what I mean is that you kind of need to think about where people are going as well and what people, what the trends will be. So, for example, right now, we are talking a lot about uh, authoritarian regimes like versus like there's, there's a lot of discussions, right, about how will states react? How will people react in their culture, right, and in their behaviors? Um, there are so many discussions like this coming up with, uh, with COVID-19. So, uh, you know, in, in a similar way, you can say when you project out a new sector, a new behavior, a new paradigm, the blockchain space for me is a new paradigm. It really is a new paradigm. And and I'm going to go further out than that um, because I've actually been putting together a book about this, but it's uh, human evolution. And so in human evolution, we've been assuming for many hundreds of years that we evolve as a single species. And it's been proven that it's not the case. We don't evolve as a single species. We evolve as ecosystems that are in balance with each other. So, for example, 
If you take the savanna in Africa and you look at gazelles and lions, they move in parallel. So lions get a bit faster, gazelles get a bit faster, so they can keep on having that cycle, right, and keep everything in balance. If lions suddenly had access to weapons, right, to technology, and they would say, oh, amazing, now we have this unfair advantage, let's catch all the gazelles, they would kill themselves in the process, right? And so they would kill themselves in the process because they would run out of food. Gazelles would no longer be in balance and reproduce at the rate that makes sense. And eventually they would starve, right? They would starve themselves. And today we are playing that game on a global level. This makes it very tricky. It makes it tricky because um, it's tough to have all the feedback loops in place. It's tough to see, oh yeah, we're really causing harm. You know, like our company polluting as much as it's been doing is going to make things completely unsustainable. No, you don't see that, right? But eventually the bill comes. Yeah. Eventually it just comes. It just comes later and it comes in a way that is less accountable. So it's not like, oh, you were the lion killing the gazelles and now you're in trouble. It's much more complex than that. And because of how our system is structured, our political and economic systems, special political systems in the West, um, people just want to shift the blame towards someone else, right? They're incentivized and they don't want, they don't quite take accountability in the way that we would hope they do. Um, and so with that said, uh, a long story to tell you that when you project out something like blockchain technology taking over and you think about what it fundamentally means for governance, right? For, for society and for the mindset of people to cut middlemen, to be in control, to have sovereignty, right? Have self-sovereignty over themselves. These are very kind of fundamental sociocultural shifts. And so they are complex by definition. So you need to have that curiosity and the natural tendency of bringing together as many different dimensions as possible and reconcile them, reconcile this puzzle in a picture that makes sense to you. And if you can get behind that, right? If you can get behind that, then you know, you have very long-term conviction. Sure. No, that's fascinating. Um, and I, I want to focus on blockchain more explicitly, and uh, I'll ask sort of a, a series of questions, I think, uh, that, so we can probably focus in on that uh, a little later in, in, in the interview. Um, but just to take you back to your point where you uh, distinguish between uh, public and private markets, um, on the public side of things, with uh, businesses IPOing now kind of quicker than ever, uh, is it possible or are there certain traits that you look for within those sorts of companies where you can actually pinpoint them as primed for stock market success? So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, how do you skip a WeWork? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's some potential success there and, and hopefully the business will go on to thrive. But ultimately, the corporate structure has been proved to be um, a mess um, and uh, perhaps it was too quick to IPO whereas a company like Zoom we're, we're, we're actually talking via Zoom now uh, it's up last time I checked 77% since IPO uh, since early last year so what, I, what I'm asking I suppose is given that companies are very quick to IPO uh, in 2020 how do you spot the winners from the losers? Yeah, so again, there are many factors in this discussion because there are external conditions, so market conditions, macro, right, like having plenty of money, having super high valuations all across the board, um, you know, negative interest rates, like all of these things coming together, yeah. paint the picture that brings prices so high anyway. Um, and then on top of that, you've got the fact that, let's be honest, technology gets away with higher valuations. So, so the ratios and the way that you analyze stocks in other industries somehow seem to not quite apply yeah. in the same way. Yeah. The technology is, and on, you know, on one side, it's fair. You know, on one side, it's fair because uh, technology does behave and software does behave especially uh, very differently than, uh, than other sectors do. Right, and it's infinitely scalable in, in some areas of technology, so to say. Um, whereas, I mean, companies like WeWork, you brought it up as an example. I think WeWork is an interesting example here because it somehow does get packed to some extent under the tech umbrella, yeah. but it's not. No. <laughs> it's actually not a tech business at all. Yeah, sure, they have an app to like manage your online presence as, as a worker uh, in the community, but really it's not a tech business at all. Um, and it's a, it's a specific case, and we could talk specifically about that. 
Um, we could also talk specifically about Zoom. I think these are, you know, there are, there are exceptions in their own ways. So, so for instance, I mean, why Zoom apps so much? Because we're all stuck at home using it uh, and trying to shift. I mean, I've, I travel a lot. I'm quite flexible already in terms of like working from different locations uh, as I travel, but uh, but the, the whole world is readjusting right now to working remotely, right? So, I mean, I'm actually surprised. I mean, maybe as we speak, like things are moving already, but um, uh, I think there's, there's a lot more to come in terms of stocks like Zoom uh, to benefit from this. Uh, also, the market tends to react and respond quickly. So, uh, uh, you know, with that said, uh, it's, uh, you know, it gets embedded already early on in the price. But anyway, so uh, look back to your original question about uh, how to spot early on these companies that are IPOing so quickly. A premise to that, by the way, is the fact that even though it looks like they are IPOing quickly, mm -hmm. there are late stage private markets that have been flooded with money as well. So, for example, SoftBank has been a typical late-stage pre-IPO investment player yeah. uh, that has uh, plenty of money coming into these companies, right? And these companies are limited at the end of the day. You only have that many WeWorks, that many Zooms that are pre-IPO and that are at that stage and that uh, a late-stage private investor wants to approach, right? And so you already have the problem you get is that those valuations are suddenly, those, those pre-IPO valuations are suddenly very high uh, and very attractive for the company itself to go for. Yeah. But then, once again, the bill comes when they have to IPO because the market takes a look at it and says, guys, we are already being very lenient with tech stocks or, you know, digital and company stocks. Um, we already have a macro situation that is fantastic But we can't give you that, right? It's just too high. Yeah. And so you have a lot of situations like that. And so I think understanding the dynamics uh, of where these companies come from and the kind of money and valuations that they get before they IPO is also very important. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's sort of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy in a way, in the sense that a company or investors, well, I guess the, the you know, the, the, the board of that company are attracted by this prospect of um, this uh, glitzy valuation that ultimately the market can't support and can't fulfill once they've actually debuted. Um, so that's the, so that's the trend that you expect to uh, continue. Definitely not. Everything is changing right now. The world is really changing and things like that are, you know, it's already yesterday's news. This is no longer happening. It will probably just no longer happen in general, you know, because there are such fundamental shifts happening right now. There is such a big return of real assets. There are indexes that, uh, you know, stock uh, market indexes that have been tanking. And on top of that, you need to take into account that we're facing hyperinflation coming up. So with all of that said, I'll just leave it there. Uh, but I can tell you with confidence that it's definitely no longer the case right now and it's not going to be the case for a while. And it's a question if it will ever quite be the case as it's been. No, that's great. That's really interesting. And um, I'd like to move us on to uh, the biotechnology space. And I, I guess it links into what we were saying, because I guess a, a key reason or a fundamental reason for market shifting so much, or, or one of the reasons is is because of COVID-19. Um, but, you know, you've been an, an investor in this space for a while now. Uh, so you obviously see a huge potential here. Um, so I guess what I'd first like to uh, get to the bottom of is what's driving growth in the space uh, for, for the medium or the long term? Of course. So biotech has been an incredibly exciting ride. I got into it uh, several years ago, both in public markets and in early stage markets. And so in early stage markets, um, I made an investment. I mean, now it's been about uh, six years in a very early uh, biotech company where I mean, quite frankly, I wanted return on learning as well. So I call it ROL with early stage deals. Sure. And uh, in my coin term, you're, you're free to use it. Uh, but uh, I think it's very important to look for that too, because at the end of the day, making early stage investments, like you want to, if possible, write them off from the start as you make them, right? Um, in, uh, in the sense of uh, when it's a sector that you're still approaching, right? If it's a sector that you're super experienced in and 
um, and you're not just being an angel investor, right? But you're a fund, obviously it's a whole different story. But when you're making these early angel investments in a new sector for yourself, then uh, uh, you need to align with some, uh, some learning return. In my case, uh, it ended up being excellent ROI. Uh, this company that I was just referring to is one of the um, success stories of uh, the, the UK biotech scene. It's called Synthase. I was very tiny and new uh, when I got to know them and decided to, to come in as an angel investor. But to go back to your question, back then, biotech was not a VC investment category as it is today. Today, all the VCs want to be in biotech. Um, you know, you've got incubators like Y Combinator that have helped in the past, I would say, three and a half years or so. They've helped suddenly bring this category out there. Uh, as it was never the case before. Why is it happening? There are a few reasons. One of the main ones, frankly, is biotech used to be really about therapeutics. And therapeutics take forever, right? Therapeutics, I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but if we're talking about developing a new drug, there is a very long cycle. It's very cash intensive. And again, you know, it's like maybe in 10 to 20 years, you will see something out of it. And so that's also why, by the way, it ends up being something that you have an extremely unfair advantage as a big consolidated pharma company because you can afford that, right? You have a completely different economic setup to afford that versus a startup. Uh, let alone the fact that VCs have a certain investment horizon up to 10 years, seven to 10 years are not enough for companies like that. But what has been happening is that other technologies have been coming into the space. AI, machine learning, like various different. So the company that I invested in six years ago, I saw that. You know, I saw that it was about bringing the efficiency of the computer science world um, and, uh, you know, and, and some machine learning and, and, and other technologies to enable uh, a change of paradigm in the way, I mean, in their specific case, it's the way that uh, lab hardware uh, processes work. Um, but it really made a difference and it made the company actually much faster and more scalable and um, it gave it an advantage versus the big guys, right? Because again, the question with startups and the way that suddenly tech startups with low cost bases, except for their salaries, <laughs> scale well, mm -hmm. is because, you, you know, again, you don't have much of that upfront investment. You just need to be smarter and faster in building good code and releasing it and testing it, right? And so that has not been the case in the biotech space until recently because we have this convergence of sectors coming together, making the whole space more efficient. So we're not talking about classic therapeutics. Also, interestingly, even in therapeutics now, you have that happening because you use AI, ML, and other technologies to make the therapeutics process faster, right? And so it's even happening in the traditional therapeutics space which is super interesting. But fundamentally, you've got these other areas of biotech. So the company that uh, my investment that I was telling you about uh, is in uh, applied synthetic biology, uh, which is a specific area of it. And so, yeah, I think, you know, to summarize all of this, it's important to understand that it's not necessarily what it always was. And this is the reason why now uh, mainstream VCs with shorter investment horizons than you know, a big pharma company uh, can enter the space and look for big profits as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it's also the reason why everything gets faster for these companies. You know? So is, is AI and, and, and ML to, to a certain extent leveling the playing field for the smaller startups relative to kind of the mega caps companies like Amgen, for example? You could say that. Uh, it's not just those. Uh, there are other factors about just, you know, how, how accessible things are. But they're definitely playing a big role. Um, I just want to premise that, you know, very often this is not just the case in biotech, but uh, companies love to say, oh, we're these AI-powered blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But actually they're not even using real AI, right? They're just running regressions and giving it a fancy name. So with that premise, okay, uh, this is definitely pushing the space forward for sure. For sure. Um, so, um, uh, in your opinion, what are the most innovative or, or groundbreaking trends in biotech uh, that you think will impact everyone's lives in the near future? Hmm. Yeah, I think that um, I haven't I haven't done any deep dive for a while from that perspective, but 
I do very much believe that, for instance, like with MedTech, the accessibility of some uh, very consumer-friendly MedTech devices, that was never the case before. So the accessibility, sometimes even for uh, physicians uh, and, and doctors to use them uh, with more frequency, with uh, better accuracy, right? And then in some cases, when they become direct consumer, for consumers themselves, right, to measure themselves and measure their data in a way that they never had access to, I think to me, this becomes really interesting. And again, this goes more into MedTech, but uh, when we're talking about impact on people, I think that's a very interesting area to look at. Yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, I said we'd return to blockchain, and I'm, I'm keen to cover it here, if I may. Um, so you were an early adopter in this space, um, and I guess what I'm keen to get to the bottom of is, is what you spotted that others might have missed. Um, so having done a bit of research prior to our chat, you bought $9 of Bitcoin over seven years ago now. So that investment will naturally have proved extremely successful. Um, so first of all, if you could answer, you know, what, what did you spot then that others might have missed? So I think that going back to what we mentioned before, when first coming across a groundbreaking new technology, you want to try to look at as many dimensions as possible coming together into it, right? For me, it was a convergence of a mix of things I was excited about, just, you know, from a technology or financial standpoint, and things I was excited about from a more idealistic or societal or evolutionary perspective, right? And so what I spotted there was um, um, number one, obviously the fact that, like I said before, blockchain technology provides an innovation ground for governance models, decentralizes in a distributed way, which by the way, when you look at nature, nature is very, very efficient. It's had millions of years to refine its processes. Our DNA is completely distributed for example, right? Like if, if I just scratch you, I'm going to have like a, a piece of your DNA that can reproduce you as a whole person, right? So you see this in nature in so many ways. And uh, there are many, many things that I could tell you about this, right? I can talk about it for many hours. Um, but the premise of how do things work in our economy and our society when we do not need to rely on middlemen and therefore the inefficiency of them capturing fees here and here and there, rather than leaving them with the people in the actual economy, making those transactions and creating that value, right? That is a big deal per se, right? That is something I'm excited about, both with my efficiency-driven kind of, you know, collective value maximization hat, right? That tells me, okay, these can eventually provide for uh, a more efficient society, right? A more efficient society from, from that kind of collective value optimization standpoint. And with my, uh, let's call it like, yeah, social, social cultural hat of saying, this is something that people are going to get excited about when they truly understand it. And we're getting there. Uh, it's, uh, it, it takes a while. But when people truly understand what it means for them, what it means for their independence, what it means for their pockets, what it means for you know, the way they live their lives, then we're dealing with something huge here. Um, and so I need to premise here as well that it takes a while. So when I say it takes a while, it takes a very long while. People love to say, oh, we're like in the 90s of uh, the internet, with blockchain technology. No, we're like in the early 80s or something. You know, there are so many infrastructural problems that need to be solved. But at the same time, because we do have the internet today, we do have instant information flowing around. We don't necessarily have that environment where in the, in the 70s and early 80s, people would just be, you know, um, in their labs, in their offices, in, you know, in in their facilities, like working with these big machines and figuring it out by themselves with nobody else being involved in that or nobody else saying, oh my God, this is the next big thing. Now we have that, right? For many reasons, and BTC has kind of like put it on the map. Uh, BTC is a crypto uh, currency, right? So we have it on the map. And so it just means that people start talking about it. Um, but the technology is very immature. 
right? And so we can talk about cryptocurrencies and we can talk about crypto assets and then ultimately blockchain protocols. These are all different things. There are many different ways to look at the space. So if we just talk about cryptocurrencies, yeah. I can tell you why, right? This is going to be relevant in my opinion. If we talk about blockchain protocols, I can also tell you why. But maybe let's go into cryptocurrencies, right? Yeah. Um, so Bitcoin has, yeah, Bitcoin has a lot of limitations and uh, Bitcoin is designed as a store of value. So a store of value like gold that is not necessarily friendly for transactions. Bitcoin is like gold. I don't need to explain you why it's not friendly for transactions. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever tried carrying like gold bars around. Um, but Bitcoin isn't either compared to other digital cryptocurrencies that are much better for fast and uh, environmentally sustainable transactions, right? At least for now. And so that might make you say, oh yeah, but these currencies, no, but actually Bitcoin is truly designed as a store of value. It's actually a, 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 an easier to uh, transact on store of value than gold anyway. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the, the way it's been perceived by the market, you see, there is a kind of like scale or like, um, like a, a flip between early adopters understanding what I just told you, understanding that it's, it's designed as a store of value, right? And valuing that about BTC, right? Valuing that over anything else, right? Just when it is a digital store of value, it's safe. Their wealth is there. They are sovereign about it like gold, you know, like let's say you buy a house in the mountain and like put some gold like somewhere, right? Or, you know, in your in, in in some deposit and with some bank, like whatever it is, right? You're like, okay, it's it's somewhere. Um with the bank, uh whatever it is, like in the same way with crypto, it's there. And because at some point crypto has become a real commodity like gold, like air, like religion, like it cannot be stopped. You know, it cannot be stopped. You cannot take it down. There are too many computers all around the world running this, recording transactions. It's unstoppable, which is very unique. It's very unique to have something like that. But again, only some people understand this. So what does that mean? That means that other investors institutional investors who in the meantime have said, hmm, this this BTC thing is interesting. Oh my God, like people have been making so much money there. What are we going to do about it? Let's put a little bit of money there. Okay. Yeah. So they put a little bit of money there and they think, well, this is kind of like a fancy derivative to us. We don't quite understand it. It seems super risky. Like, you know, it's like digital magic money. And so they treat it like a derivative in the beginning until they understand it better. And because, and I think the moment in time where they're going to understand it better is now, I will tell you about why in a second, but because they treat it as the derivative, what do derivatives do? For instance, when the market goes down, like they go down even more, there's a lot of volatility. And so you have this dichotomy in Bitcoin, in the Bitcoin market where a part that used to be the majority of Bitcoin holders understands the store of value angle But then another part of the market, which has now become very big in terms of total percentage of ownership, right, in the market of uh, BTC, Mm -hmm. does not think that way yet, right? And I am starting to see this shift happening right now where institutionals and investors in general are saying, oh my goodness, can we hold this currency? Is this currency going to exist? For example, euro. Is this other currency going to undergo massive inflation, for example, USD and many others. And so out of all of these considerations, you suddenly have a, what can we hold? What real assets like BTC? Hold on. What is BTC? Oh, right. Oh, I see. Okay. So you have this process that I am starting to see because, you know, I kept on telling people in my industry, look, guys, we get it that it's a store of value, but a lot of the rest of the market doesn't. And you have also to keep in mind that BTC is a very tiny market compared to, you know, it's like a 70th of gold, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, the dynamics, when they get dropped by a bunch of institutionals, like it looks like, oh my God, the price is going down so much. Um, but it's not quite correlated, right? You can't, you can't just make assumptions. And I think that 
the main reason is because there is a shift in education, in understanding, and therefore in the way that BTC gets treated, right? So I've told you quite a bit about BTC now. Um, there are many other currencies we could talk about, and, and we can talk about blockchain tech more specifically, which is a whole different story. But I think that this is a very interesting point in time for BTC. You know, I, I find it very exciting. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's important to understand that ultimately there is this education problem about how people perceive BTC. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, that um, I think uh, you mentioned that some people reference uh, BTC as kind of a fancy deri uh, derivative. And I think that's... Um, that's a term that would resonate with a lot of investors that maybe don't properly understand, as you as you kind of eloquently put it, the the, the kind of true value of of uh, this cryptocurrency. Um, what's uh, and obviously you kind of touched on there this uh, comparison between gold. Um, and so, how far away do you think we are? Um, and maybe this is an unfair question, but. Um, but let me ask it and, and let's, see what it, let's see what you say. How, how far away do you think we are from people uh, truly valuing BTC or any other cryptocurrency, but probably BTC in the first instance, as a proper safe haven, uh, similar to how investors around the world value gold at the moment? Yeah, so I think we are at a crossroads right now. We are at a very interesting point in time. I think it's flipping now. I really start seeing it. I see institutionals or friends of mine from that space all starting to understand and look into this in a way that they didn't before because of necessity. So actually, I think that we are at a shifted point right now in the way that BTC is being perceived. No, that's fascinating. Thank you. So um, if I may, just something that... Um, that I was reading about in the news fairly recently, Facebook have had to scale back uh, and delay their Libra offering uh, due to regulator pressure. So obviously that's a big headwind for um, for cryptocurrencies. Um, do you think that sort of pressure is likely to inhibit cryptocurrency adoption in the, in the short to medium term? Again, if you think about BTC and you think about the assumptions behind Libra being a big deal for the whole BTC space, I think the, sorry, over the whole crypto space more in general, mm. this still comes from that other mentality we talked about, right? So a mentality that does not necessarily fully grasp what BTC is ultimately about and its inherent value. And so as things shift, right, this will shift as well. The influence or rather lack of influence of Libra uh, you know, it, it will move that way. Another thing is people love to speculate of like, yeah, sure, it was Libra having a big impact on it. But actually, for instance, like Asia and the way they've adopted crypto, right? That gets often kind of cut out of these narratives in the West. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that it should, it should be given way more relevance. There are so many different aspects in the dynamics. And again, you know, given the size of the market, how early it is, how everybody's kind of like still grappling with their own understanding, it's very tricky to just correlate it to specific happenings. Sure. No, um, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but it sounds like uh, it would definitely be worth a, a follow-up uh, on on uh, Bitcoin or cryptos more more generally. Um, so perhaps we can put that together uh, further further down the line. Uh, but whilst I've got you, I wanted to move on to uh, impact investing. So it's obviously something um, that's close to your heart with the um, creation of top tier impact, uh, as I mentioned uh, at the outset of the episode. Um, so here I'm keen to kind of understand from uh, an investment perspective, whether there's a credible opportunity here and um, are the larger asset managers uh, simply paying lip service to, to what is a trendy sort of trend or sector at the moment, or, or do they see true value there? So when you look at the impact investing space and the understanding of different types of investors in the market, you can qualify it, just to be simple, you can qualify it from three corners. They're the ones who are in it because it's, so to say, about doing good. They're the ones who are in it because there is a strong marketing angle. And they're the ones who are in it because they understand 
these are some of the biggest investment trends of the coming decade and beyond. The world we're moving into is a world where this will become status quo. In a few years from now, we will not be here talking about impact investing, about sustainability. It will just be how things have to operate. I do believe that for many, many reasons. Uh, without going into all of that, this is like a summary way of looking at the space. So you have funds that have seized the headwind, right, of saying, oh, now it's like fancy and everybody's talking about it and we need to be in it. And then you have funds that have really kind of uh, followed those, uh, uh, the trends, the underlying trends. And I'll give you an example. One of our members at Top Tier Impact runs a fund, a sustainability-focused private equity fund that has had 48% IRR, that has been in the market for over 10 years, that has been you know, five times oversubscribed on their last fundraise by top LPs from you know, the US and many other markets. Why? Because their understanding is pure. They look at, for instance, sustainability from a resource efficiency or pollution control standpoint. They do see how in the businesses they invest, like I'm, I'm familiar with their portfolio and you see uh, a lot of businesses in there because they're private equity businesses, right? So these are not startups, mm -hmm. but you see a lot of businesses in there that have had to become sustainable out of necessity. You know, because being sustainable means being resource efficient, which, which means, the, or, you know, pollution control, like I just said, but like, let's take resource efficiency is most easy to understand. And when you talk about resource efficiency, you're wasting less resources, less money. I mean, the problem has been fundamentally that with externalities, so when we say negative externalities, we mean, okay, pollution has not been priced in. And therefore, businesses have been able to pollute as much as they want without paying a price for it. That is changing as well, by the way. So we have businesses that um, they've, been, they've been looking at other resources, right? Like genuinely resources that cost you money and therefore have adjusted and become way leaner, way more sustainable than any of their competitors. Why? Because they had to stay in business. But on top of it right now, you have governments all around the world and you've seen it and businesses that out of all of this pressure of say, saying, guys, we can't continue like this, are pricing in their carbon emissions, right? And this is only increasing and becoming mainstream. And I think that actually, you know, because again, I like to take a C19 adjusted view on things as we speak. Uh, but uh, all of it, if anything, is bringing more awareness, right, to, to impact and sustainability. And so you've got a lot of things coming together. And with Top Tier Impact, we are a global network of impact investors, impact entrepreneurs, and corporate leaders in sustainability, professionals in the space across more than 20 countries. And we, we really see how things are becoming more mainstream in terms of like the understanding about the space, uh, but how, how we are also trying to ultimately with top tier impact, I'm trying to kind of shift what I told you before about these three kind of general categories of investors. Yeah. The more investors we can actually move towards the understanding of the investment opportunities, right. And the themes away from these, Oh, this is about appearing good or doing good or whatever. Right because um, that's just part of the picture, the more investors we can move towards a wholesome understanding of these investment trends, the better, from my perspective. Sure. So uh, just quickly, when you say mainstream, are we talking about when it properly hits and infiltrates the retail market? Mainstream from many different perspectives, I would say the understanding of uh, um, people across categories. So whether it's investors, like understanding what I just told you, mm -hmm. uh, or whether it's consumers really demanding this. And this has been happening massively over the last, I mean, I, I've seen the shift, right? Because of running top tier impact, I've seen the shift just in the last six to nine months. It's been incredible. And so, yeah, it does hit the mainstream retail market as well, right? Because that's what consumers demand. Yeah. Okay. So, um, will, um, impact. I mean, I mean, I'm guessing your answer is yes to this question. But will impact investing truly impact society and the environment in in a meaningful way? Um, so, if your answer is is yes, um, then then if you could just sort of dig into into the specific elements of that, you know, where are we going to see the biggest impact first? So, 
again, when you start seeing a, an environment where making, so to say, bad investments, um, you know, in categories that are against sustainability starts to be not only frowned upon, but quite frankly, less profitable as well than it ever was before, then you, you have the shift of attention. And so if you're asking me what sectors, right, what sectors um, have, let's start maybe with clean energy, because you see clean energy had a bubble about, well, over 10 years ago now, and everybody was like, ah, oh, clean energy, you know, Silicon Valley was all about clean tech funds. The problem is that it was still very expensive. But now, by now, with all of that becoming cheaper, what has happened? What's happened is that it's become more profitable to be part of the solution than to be part of the problem. So in other words, like all of this is not just like, oh, let's be, let's be nice, let's be... It, once again, this is about super solid investment themes that are more profitable and make more sense anyway from every perspective. And so when you look at clean engine and now you've got solar not even needing uh, uh, support and like, you know, grants anymore, like you've got all of these things that have happened. And so it just makes sense in any case, right? It's no longer like, oh, this is going to be more expensive, but it's better for the planet. It's like, this is less expensive and it's better for the planet, right? Like, no brainer. So you've got sectors like that and that change has been happening and again, you know, in a similar way to what I was actually talking about with BTC, <laughs> the education standpoint of investors understanding these, right, rather than just saying, oh, it's because it's the right thing to do. And so on, this, this, this deeper understanding is starting to infiltrate. And so you've got that. Uh, you've got many other categories. It would probably take us time to go through all of them. Um, sure. there are a few different frameworks, so I can leave you with that. There are a few different frameworks to think about the impact space because ultimately what does impact mean, right? This is still a big question. Yeah. And so some people like to look at it from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I encourage all listeners who are interested in impact investing to get familiar with that because, uh, this is actually going to, um, going to be increasingly, widely used. I'm seeing a lot of institutionals thinking in terms of SDGs. We have a partnership um, being put together with the World Economic Forum actually on an SDG uh, platform initiative. There are a lot of players out there basically that are using the SDGs as a framework of reference and there are a few others but I think that this is a, a good initial one to get familiar with. Sure. So um, just to finish on on impact investing, it should be interesting uh, to me and hopefully our listeners as well to understand what you're most excited about within the uh, within the impact space. So whether that's a particular sector could be renewable energy, for example, and perhaps it's even borne out uh, through your investments via top tier impact. Mm -hmm. Yes. So. Clean energy is definitely one that we can talk about uh, from that perspective. I've been getting uh, increasingly educated about it thanks to Top Tier Impact uh, because our community is very active. So every day you've got an exchange of knowledge, insights, information by experts across this industry, you know. And so me, like just, just even as I'm, I'm a member as well, not just a founder, right? And so uh, just getting that exposure to those discussions, like I learn so much every day. And if I have questions, then, you know, I, we have a Slack, we have a WhatsApp group. If I post my questions there, I get incredible answers within 10 minutes. Now, this goes a bit more, I guess, in, into the dynamics of that engagement as a community. But what I'm trying to tell you is that there generally are a lot of kind of uh, accessible uh, clean energy opportunities from an investment standpoint. I'm saying that also because... Uh, you've got some themes uh, in terms of like you know, real assets like hydrogen, like are those widely accessible? You've got tokenizing. One of our members has been tokenizing forestry as an asset. Why tokenizing? Because it makes it liquid and widely accessible, uh, even though you need to deal with a lot of real world issues, right, to make that investment category um, as accessible, right? But so you see a lot of things like that. And so... Um, I think clean energy is uh, an area that is worth investing time into understanding better. That's great. Um, no, thank you very much. And uh, you've already been really generous with your time. Uh, but 
if we can uh, i've got a couple of quick fire questions uh, just four here and you can answer answer them in as little as one word or one sentence whatever you're kind of comfortable with um but the first one is uh what are, to you at least the the, the top three or, or top one even mistakes that uh, investors make i could say that uh becoming less subjective about an opportunity and so trying to just see like further good boxes to take right because uh implicitly a decision has already been made it's like oh i'm really interested in this opportunity and now it's just about finding positive evidence of that you can always find that so that's a mistake that i see a lot okay so so where do you go for uh, investment or business insights i really enjoy one-on-one conversations i have a wide network of uh uh, people who, like me, have a keen interest uh, in uh, various uh, investment categories and opportunities. I really, really enjoy uh, swapping thoughts, but ultimately, I do like having those discussions. If you if you can pick one out, your most memorable moment from your career today? <laughs> I think probably discovering my passion for entrepreneurship as I was a little child. And I only realized when I was grown up, uh, because, you know, when I was 11, I started reselling all my books and toys and I just loved it so much. You know, I love the selling process and all of that. And, but uh, uh, some years ago, as I kind of like, you know, approached entrepreneurship more from a tech perspective at university, and I remembered that, and I was like, oh my God, like that really resonated like that. So I think it was like a, an, early, an early realization of uh, how exciting it can be and uh, enjoyable in a natural way. Okay, so uh, what follows on nicely then, a, a top tip for that younger self. <laughs> yeah, so... I find that more and more, I've, I've had this in general, but being able to look at as many contradicting points of view as possible on one topic, on one area, holding conflicting points of view at the same time together, right? It becomes handy when you're trying to reconcile a complex picture or rebuild a puzzle, uh, but also as people in general, you know? Yeah. No, that's great. That's really interesting. Uh, so that brings us then. Uh, it brings us to the end of the interview. Uh, it feels as if we could sort of spend another few hours digging into particularly uh, cryptocurrencies and, and biotech as well. Uh, so hopefully we'll get a chance further down the line to catch up with you again. But but thanks very much for your time. Of course, thanks, Aidan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends, and in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.